Welcome to Quarantined Market Podcast, Episode 2. Uh, today's keyword is generation, and we'll be discussing how the concept applies to contemporary consumer culture and what might you make of it in this historical moment of the current crisis. So, Alan, would you like to introduce our guest? Yes, um, but before I do, I thought I would share with you something that a friend of mine said. My friend Andy Murray, um, I told him I'd uh, set up a podcast with you, and he said that he's noticed that one of the worst symptoms of coronavirus is that people up and down the land have been setting up these dreadful podcasts and asking people to listen to them. Uh, and he, he lamented terribly that I had joined in on all of this. So that notwithstanding, let us uh, say hello to uh, Keir Milburn, author of Generation Left, and also an established podcaster in his own right. He has an excellent podcast on acid Corbynism, which I heartily recommend. Uh, Keir, unfortunately, well, nobody is perfect, but he doesn't work in a marketing department, but he does at least work in a business school um, at uh, University of Leicester. And he's also the author of Generation Left, which was published recently by Polity, um, and is an excellent book, which I heartily recommend as well. So welcome to the podcast, Keir. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, and you are, in fact, the first guest on our podcast. So that's exciting. <laughs> yeah, great. Also, Alan, I'd like to also ask you, what is this business school you're talking about? Because I'd like to remind you that I'm no, lo no longer in a business school myself either. Well, that's true. We're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. <laughs> Keywords. Uh, so the idea is uh, with reference to Raymond Williams' classic 1976 book on keywords to identify words that are in the parlance um, and to try and ground them in some sort of definition that everybody could recognize. And one word which has become much more um, evident in these last few years has been that of generation the idea that there's a split emerging between the young and the old in politics um, as well as in consumer culture more broadly. Uh, so, Keir, if you were to define the word keywords, where would you start? Perhaps you'd start with like the popular understanding of what a generation is, and then you'd sort of critique it and say that's not good enough. So that's what I'll do if you want me. <laughs> yes, please. And because, you know, the, the, the popular... The popular view of generations, which would be something like uh, a new generation comes along every 20 years as if by magic. So you have the baby boomers, then you have the Generation X, uh, then you have millennials, then perhaps you have Generation Z. I think that people are sort of settling on that now as people born from 2000. And that sort of does really arise out of out of marketing. Then, in my opinion, they're not particularly coherent concepts. You know, people have tried to put some sort of coherence on them, right? So, so you know, that, 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 so the critique would be something like this. You know, you'd probably say a generation is, is everybody who was born within perhaps a 20-year period. Um, you'd probably say something. It's, it's nearly a 20-year period between birth and then when you have your first child, perhaps, something like that. And then, then perhaps you've got another 20 years in which you are fertile, uh, perhaps a little bit longer, et cetera, et cetera. So you can make some sort of argument for that. But the big problem with that is that, uh, of course, we, we don't just give birth in 20-year cycles. You know, we have we give birth every single day. So where does one generation start and the other one end would be the problem with that concept. And there's, you know, we don't actually, people don't agree when, like, millennials start and end. 
because it's not a coherent concept. So that other people are trying to put some sort of coherence behind it. So there are these sort of pseudo-historians, Neil Howe and William Strauss, who write who wrote write these books, who actually came up with the name Millennial, actually. The, the, the name millennial for that generation. You know, they write these books, which are sort of like child-rearing determinist books. So it's like they say that there is some sort of like meta-historical pattern in child-rearing, uh, you know, sort of like perhaps strict child-rearing and then lax child-rearing. Child rearing. Uh, and they've, they've charted this. And so that gives different characters to different generations. And it goes in a sort of cycle, of like heroes, um, prophets, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they they took that back to sort of um, the American Revolution and they've, they've projected forward to something like 2066 or something like that. You know, let's cut to the chase. It's just bollocks. <laughs> um, but we do have this phenomena at the moment where there is just a, there's a real, like the political gap between the generations, the distinction between the generations is one of the most, one of the driving um, dynamics of the political system at the moment. Uh, you know, uh, it was visible really, really visible in the 2017 general election in the UK, visible in the 29 general election in the UK, you know, visible in Sinn Féin's uh, victory in, in the Irish elections, absolutely dominating the US Democratic Party presidential battle. Uh, you know, and in, in most of those, uh, the old have beaten the young, <laughs> if you want to put it like that. So you've got this problem, which is like a completely incoherent concept of generations. In the Generation Left book, I sort of, I argue that, you know, the sort of idea of a generation which we took from perhaps the 1960s, the sort of baby boomer definition of a generation, which is sort of around, you know, which, which developed around youth consumption patterns, basically, and sort of the invention of youth to a certain degree in a post-war period. You know, that is not what we have now. We haven't got sort of like a difference in sort of in consumption patterns. We have a difference in uh, or the root of it is in a, a distinction in material interests, basically, and material prospects. And so in the book I use, I, I paraphrase Stuart Hall and say that um, currently age is one of the modalities through which classes lived. He talks about race being a modality for which classes lived or experienced, uh, which sort of means that, you know, basically people's, the common experiences of particular age cohorts are helping them recognise their immediate material interests. And it would go somewhere like this, this material interest argument would be something like, a lot of it devolves down to um, to uh, ownership of assets. It really, it traces back to the, to, to the way, to the birth of neoliberalism and the way that neoliberalism defeated the sort of forms of working class power of the post-war period. And, you know, finance made financialization, the financialization of, of everyday life made a really big, important part of that. The post-war period, we have sort of state-backed welfare systems, and that has increasingly shifted towards asset-backed welfare systems. And in that, that has worked out better for older people and worse for younger people, for just for historical reasons, i.e. your older people own, own assets, they own particularly houses, but they also have pensions and pensions which have been financialized, etc., and they've done that because, you know, that's that's the way that they were incentivized into the neoliberal, what we might call a neoliberal deal. And so in that way, you know, older people's interests, we're talking um, quite broadly in this, not everybody over the age of 65 has the same interest. In the UK, a quarter of over 65s don't own their own home. So they're outside of this, uh, of this sort of alignment. But, you know, older people's interests are aligned to the financial sector and the real estate sector. And so when the financial sector is doing well or the real estate sector is doing well, their interests are being met. 
Whereas for younger people, their interests are quite the opposite. If those two sectors are doing well, their interests are doing badly and their interests are attached to wages, etc. You have this on long, ongoing uh, pattern, but the 2008 crisis is what accelerates it and causes this, this, this split. So that's one level of this. I've heard you mention before a distinction between a real economy uh, that you say that younger people tend to live in and a, a fantasy economy that yeah. older people live in. Could you elaborate on that, please? You know, one way to understand that is if if you look, you know, saying them in the US, Donald Trump is was saying, you know, that we've got the booming economy, the best economy in the world, etc. If you looked at the stock markets until the last couple of weeks, you it, it would look as though you, that you know they were at levels that would indicate that the underlying economy is booming, and, and yet all the indicators from the underlying economy, wage wage growth, etc., GDP growth indicate stagnation and real problems. And so I wrote an article about a month ago, you know, predicting, saying, look, you can understand how these two worldviews come about. You know, for the boomers, the world is booming. Therefore, you, the world seems OK, actually. And that means that all of these young people who are moaning, they're just snowflakes, basically. You need to pull their, pull their socks up. Um, and I was predicting, you know, look, look, what we're going to see over the next decade is that the, the general coordinates of the, of the young left, we may say, are going to be confirmed. And the coordinates of the old right are going to be confounded. And so the, the task is to work out how, when, it, when your worldview is confounded, you then alter it in some way in order to try to re-problematize the world so that it accords with your interests, which would be a useful thing to think of. But, what, but another way into that is that like one of the other coordinates of my sort of schema for generations is generations are not just reducible to, to material interests, right? Or, or rather we could say we always have multiple potential material interests and we tend to, to, to choose one or form a political alignment with, with the one that seems to us to lead to a, a viable and attractive future. And so another way of thinking about that is, you know, basically uh, material interests are, are, are tied to a sort of like a common sense sort of understanding of what the future holds. So a sort of a common sense understanding of what is socially and political, politically possible to achieve in the future. And so my so the second part of my analysis of, a, of what a generation is, it says it's not all to do with, with with material interests. So it's not all reducible to class in that sort of in that crass way. I, I, I turn to um, Karl Mannheim's conception of a generation um, who says that, you know, you don't all, you don't just get a generation coming along every 20 years. You may only have a, a one generation or one political generation, he says, in 100 years, or you may have several generations in 10 years because you have generations form when you have a speeding up in the pace of change and therefore the normal way in which um, in which the understanding of the world sort of passes from one, one, one age court to another gets interrupted. And so basically in the book, I've sort of, sort of tried to say, well, look, is it the same fast periods of change? Why don't we think, why don't we think about the, the literature on events and say, you know, well, events cause the, you know, events are the things which, which alter what seems socially and politically possible and they can alter that in a combined but uneven way across different age cohorts. And so you attach that material interest along with that, the, this altered common sense understanding of what's possible. And, and like if, there's, if, if there's a divergence of both of those, then you get distinct political generations. And I think there has been a, a divergence of both of those. Uh, Kier, I was also thinking uh, like past material relations and more into the field of ideology. So one thing that comes to mind in this uh, antagonism between, like you said, snowflakes and then, of course, on the other side of the uh, aisle is the OK Boomer meme that's going on in the Internet. Yeah. Again, like I'm thinking, of course, there's 
massive material and financial reasons uh, behind this antagonism too. But there seems to also be this ideological tension between this future that you mentioned, like, is there a future to inhabit anymore? So I'm reminded of Mark Fisher's uh, cancellation of the future and the affective mm -hmm. atmosphere that we live in these days. So in this sense, is this belief in the future in the face of climate change and other ecological disasters, is this what for you separates this, for example, from the 70s hippie movement or the punk movement or the later underground rave movement. So is, was it more simply about difference back then rather than direct opposition in the face of the future? Yeah, there's, a, there's an interesting one to think about because obviously, you know, the, the punk slogan was no future. And in fact, you know, the, the, you, you can sort of think of the punk movement emerging out of like, you know, the crisis of, of the social democratic compact. Another way to get into that would be to think because um, because a real problem for my analysis, which would be or, or the crude version of my analysis, which would be, oh, look, you, you know, the older people are voting to sort of try not to change anything because, you know, what's happened since the since the financial crisis of 2008 is that we've had this huge state intervention to make sure nothing changes to prop up asset prices, to prop up, prop up stock markets. You know, that's what quantitative easing does. It, it's flows into it's not flown into business investment. It's flown into um, asset price inflation primarily. There's a problem with that. Right. So. You know, in the UK, particularly the over 55s and the over 65s voted massively for Brexit and they were really into a no deal Brexit. And there was this, this poll released last summer uh, amongst Conservative Party members, which was like this incredibly nihilistic thing that, you know, they in order to get a Brexit done, they would be prepared to destroy the Conservative Party, to crash the economy, to suffer a decline in uh, in their own sort of material well-being. You know, it was quite mad. There's like a nihilistic no future edge to the contemporary right in some ways. You know, Bolsonaro in in Brazil is another example of this. You know, the consciously, conscious government policy to try to burn the Amazon. You know, we, there's various ways we can get into that. Like it, in terms of the Brexit thing, I think one of the things that's happened is that older people have developed a sense of immunity from crises. We got we went through 2008, and it, but from their perspective, their interest didn't actually suffer that much. Right. Because the financial sector got bailed out, their interests are aligned to the financial sector. So there's this sort of sense that, well, you know, we can have crises, but but perhaps they won't affect us. So in the UK, the big cliche is all of these boomers are claiming, you know, we are, we live through the blitz. We live through the Second World War. They're all born after the Second World War. We live through the blitz, etc. This fantasy idea of like we're stoic, we can get through anything, which could be that we could get into real problems at, at this moment now. The philosopher Paul Virilio recognized long ago that fascism as a form of state is effectively or its effective tendency is inherently suicidal. And then, yeah. the, then the accelerationist Nick Land also made a parallel of that to late stage or contemporary capitalism or techno capitalism, whatever you wish to call it. So is there, in your view, a sort of affective atmosphere of, I know this is a very naive way to put it, but this kind of is all over the message boards when I was checking out on the background of this thing. The idea is that old people don't care because they know they'll be dead. So it's just, it's just this smash and grab now while you're still alive and you don't really care about the younger people. Fuck the planet. Uh, climate change doesn't will not affect me personally. Is this antagonism somehow reflective of a new form of selfishness or is this a new thing or have we already had that or is it just an intensification of some sort? Yeah, I'd, I'd sort of separate those a little bit because, yeah, I agree. I mean, Deleuze and Guattari go on about this as well, of, of, of like, you know, the suicidal tendency of, of, of fascism is based on Hitler's 
whatever it was. You know, that decree said of burn, burn Germany, etc. as the Red Army moves in. Uh, and you can definitely see that in, in the sort of far right, the ethno-nationalist right around, around the world. The whole of that right is based on a sort of denialist dimension to it. And climate change denial is like obviously the biggest one, etc. But like, I think that gives a sort of ideological, extreme ideological uh, expression to something which most people are, are, are quite a long way away from. So to give a more a generous interpretation of older people voting in parties who are going to fuck up the interests of the younger siblings, etc. You know, who who display climate change denialism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, I think most climate change denialism really is an expression not of that they don't that people don't think it's going to happen or they don't think it's happening. It is uh, an expression of the fact that they think they can protect themselves from the impact. And of course, if you think so, it comes back to like your your idea of like what is socially and politically possible. So in the UK, we've got a generation who have been who have been politically defeated for 40 years, right? Since the beginning of neoliberalism, the mode of that defeat, or at least one part of the mode of that defeat, was to stuff their mouths with credit, right? Which is you know what why we had the asset price boom, etc. But they don't believe that you can change the world in a progressive direction because they've got 40 years of experience of that not happening right, and being let down on that. So if you don't believe that collective big political change is possible, what is the best way to ensure yourself, protect yourself and your family is to build up your own assets and protect your own assets, protect your inheritance in some way. I think you can link material interests of like a wider body and see how it can lead towards political expressions. But I don't think the whole of the boomer generation have got a, a death drive or, or, or whatever. No, they all have a death drive. We all do. I don't think that they're, they're, they're in a suicidal uh, kamikaze dive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's time to start to look at the current moment and coronavirus mm -hmm. and how everything uh, changes as consequence of this. Now, in your book here, I note that you invoke Alain Badiou's theory of the event of some sort of moment which sets the ethics uh, and a sequence mm -hmm. of events that will span out. And you set the 2008 financial uh, crisis. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is, do you think now coronavirus is a new event? And with that in mind, what of course gets flipped, you've mentioned this concept of immunity, that those who are asset rich could justifiably feel a sense of immunity from the consequences of Brexit and Trump and so on. Whereas now that generation are been designated as the vulnerable category who should self-isolate and are really now dependent on younger people obeying the social distancing requirements from the state. And this kind of horror sets in that their vulnerability now is seemed to be uh, expanded the whole time. So it's as yeah. if what, what mattered previously was the owning of assets, whereas now it's flipped that if you're in good health, you will survive this coronavirus, this epidemic. So what Everything has changed completely, has it not? Is this a new event, first of all? And, and, and if so, how can we think about how the power dynamics of generation have, have shifted? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really difficult to work out. So we don't know the full dynamics of, we don't know the full dimensions of how this event will play out. But we're, we're almost certainly, we're almost certain to have a, an economic collapse about the size of the 1930s. We don't know if it will respond in exactly the same way afterwards, but like people are predicting a second quarter sort of collapse in growth by between like 15 and 25%, which is like, you know, 25% is bigger than the 1930s. But of course, the 1930s was like a long, decade-long 
period of crises leading to another event, which was the Second World War. And then after that, you have like a really epochal change in the in a way in the sort of like social, political and economic setup. So if we look back at 2008, what I've been trying to think of is this, will this create a generation pandemic, you know, the pandemic generation? Uh, and it's really hard to think whether this is actually, an, it's definitely a new event. Right? There's no doubt about that. But like the conditions, the economic conditions we went into this uh, event with uh, were set up by 2008. So basically there was going to be a recession in a relatively short order. Right, this fantasy economy that we'd had in which we were, we couldn't get out of an extremely low interest rate economy, couldn't wean ourselves off quantitative easing, etc. We just had to keep getting this, you know, pumping up this um, this asset price inflation. You know, that it's probably not a, a sustainable situation. So it was always going to come to some sort of problem. And so when we're thinking about whether this is an event and what, what's it going to change, what one thing we can do is like map the, the generational distinctions that were going into it. And then we can sort of think about how they may they may alter. It's, it's a really difficult one to think through. So, so one of them will be the fantasy economy to which the um, the sort of property pensioners who are like the, the bedrock of this of the new sort of like ethno-nationalist or the new right. That fantasy economy is gone. It's not coming back. And their, their interests are being really badly hit, economic interests, etc. But I think there's also something there's also something something else as well. I think ideologically there's a real big problem here. So one of one of the if we go back to this generation snowflake, which is so that's the boomer accusation at young people that they are snowflakes basically. Um, and so there's like an anti woke element to the right, or like generation snowflake is all about oh you you're always blaming other people for your problems. You know you should take responsibility for your own problems. So Wendy Brown talks about this as neoliberal responsibilization that we that is which is basically the elimination of politics to some degree the elimination of the social from from ideology, and like the idea that you are responsible for your own circumstances. There are no structural causes to your circumstances, and there are no historical causes. That is coming under extreme pressure at the moment, right? So we could think about that as resting on a certain lived experience of freedom, which you might call a sort of like individualized conception of autonomy, right? And all of a sudden, all of the, all of that, the infrastructural work, the social reproductive work, which allows somebody who's a wealthier person to experience autonomy, all of that, which is unusually hidden and obscured, has suddenly become visible, basically, because the conditions of that, under that which that work is done could now kill us. Right. And so it really undermines this idea of right wing, right wingness, I think it brings out there. Um, it's taken social distancing to realize our deep inter interdependence with each other. That, like, you know, an individualist ideology in which we are separate and free from other people has been undermined. The, the, the constraint of social and political possibility where it is not possible for the government to do these big things. And, you know, what, what is politically possible, you know, that's sort of been lifted overnight, you know. Uh, the UK government saying they're going to guarantee 80% of wages is probably something that uh, people didn't think would be uh, brought into <laughs> into being in the UK within a couple of months of Boris Johnson getting elected, you know. So those are some of the things in which that is going to play out in that sort of way. Whether this is a new event or whether it's, a con it's going to be seen in, in, in the long historical perspective as the next stage of a, of a long roll out rolling unrolling series of events which we could categorize as like this moment of epochal change i don't know the other the other big thing of course it's not just what's behind us it's what's in front of us we are also you know in the face of the the, the need to make 
incredibly big uh, transformations in our social, political, economic setup in order to deal with, mitigate and deal with climate change. You know, that has got to be altered by this sort of huge wave of government action. So uh, you kind of mentioned the relation between generation and uh, identity. I would like to ask like a critical question about this. So if one thinks about the current situation and then looks at this generational issue from an identity politics perspective, who no mm-hmm. doubt have done a gargantuan amount to raise awareness about injustice and inequality, but nevertheless, identity politics still tends to work through splitting through difference. So you create more and more division, you get, create more and more identities. And of course, the critical perspective to that is that isn't this the very thing that capitalism feeds upon to create more difference and more difference. So if you just look at my Facebook feed today, it's littered with memes about how coronavirus came along to kill the boomers. So finally, yeah. there's a solution yeah. to the boomer problem. So the boomer could see, remover. Could you see this, if you look at it from a critical perspective, this antagonism between, could you also say that capitalism can incorporate that as another way to diminish solidarity between people? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly true. But I think, so when I use the anti-woke right, that's not to defend wokeness necessarily. I, 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 and what, we, what we're critiquing is like the, the, the sort of imaginary concept of wokeness in the sort of rights political imaginary. And, but you, you'd sort of say that there are sort of sev- there are different aspects to uh, what we might call identity politics. Like one one of them is is to try to make visible the conditions for your own experience, right? Ultimately, I think it's going to like as we go move forward politically. That I think there are two conceptions of like freedom, the broad parameters of which have been been set out over the last sort of decade or so. And on on the right, it was this idea of like you know individualist autonomy which I described earlier. And on the left, it's, it's it's the direct opposite. It is much more a drive towards... So in my uh, my own podcast, ACFM, which was an acid Corbynist podcast, but we're probably going <laughs> to talk about it in a different way now. But we, we've been thinking a lot about consciousness raising. And we're thinking about that as in, you know, it's it's all about trying to understand the, the structural forces uh, that condition and constrict your own ability to act. Uh, I know. And, and so you can say... This, this, the pedagogical sort of uh, nature of this crisis is to re- to reveal a lot of that, right? So could that that can also be taken in an, in an identity sort of politics, this sort of or, or what we might call a liberal sort of direction in which you have this hierarchy of oppressions, and you know what what you're actually claiming is a right to resources because of your oppressed nature, etc. Uh, what m- might militate against that is just the, the universal nature of this crisis. It's really quite a rare thing, which you know we're all subject to it. Not not all to the same extent. Right? It is less dangerous for younger people and more dangerous for older people. But it is it's sort of like a universal, right across the uh, uh, the world sort of experience. That seems to me a sort of a hopeful uh, element of it. One question that I'd like to pose is uh, in terms of how we define capital, which itself has always got to be. A contingent. But if you think of capital as a resource that allows you to yield power over other people, it seems now that there's an element of the primitive reappearing up to a point, and I'll, I'll qualify this in a moment, but having your health and your youth is a much more useful source of immunity or uh, mitigated risk than having lots of money. The point being, of course, that those who are able to self-isolate 
have a privilege. Those who are able to self-isolate in big houses uh, and have money to pay for to stockpile and so on is is, is important. Um, but mm. nonetheless, there has been somewhat something of a shift uh, in that being young now uh, is the source of safety and therefore is a source of a type of power as well. There's been a revolution in a sense. Uh, and what I mean by that is that which was upside down is now on top and vice versa. Mm. Yeah, that is, I think that is possible. But I think what we need to distinguish or disarticulate is there's an immediate sort of next year sort of pandemic crisis in which people need to get through. And then there's an ongoing economic crisis, which is going to be much bigger and much more longer lasting or presumably longer lasting. We don't know quite how it works out this exact form of crisis where you have to sort of shut down production for a year or so. So I think the power of health (laughs) of the yen in some ways is going to be more prevalent in the next year. But it's the next year in which there's going to be social isolation. So that gets diminished to some degree. You can see how there could be ways in which that could help bridge the generation gap to some degree. And, and like, you know, there's been a big emergence in the UK of mutual aid groups on a, on a sort of community level of presumably younger people going around leafleting houses and saying, if you need me to go shopping for, you need us to go shopping for you, we can arrange that. And then presumably the people who are um, are self-isolating, they're mostly old. So it's basically the young, you know, mobilising to support the old, etc. Same is happening in uh, Helsinki, Finland as well. I suppose the socialist question is always, how can we imagine the politics of everybody? Um, how can we um, create the conditions for solidarity? Um, yeah. And what you're mapping out in terms of the material and effective splits in generations uh, undermines that capacity. So do you think that has shifted now or do you feel more optimistic, more pessimistic about this question of of whether or not we can have the politics of everybody, a proper solidarity? My project has has never been of of trying to get a politics of youth. It's been about how do you bridge this generation gap. Ultimately, what, what that means would be that we'd have to move away from this politics of dealing with risk through financialization and asset ownership, basically. So, so like, like I said earlier, you know, if you think about over the 20th century, we see this shift from, you know, the post-war sort of state-backed welfare to asset-based welfare. And what we're finding now is that asset-based welfare is, or financialized uh, approaches to risk are actually no of no use at all in this situation. They just vanish. They're illusory in a situation in which you really, really need them. And so you, I imagine we'll see some sort of move back towards socialised forms of risk, of managing risk. Um, and of course, you know, ultimately that comes down to forms of property. It's not a coincidence that, um, that um, you know, basically property ownership has been, you know, the, the main way in which people try to insure themselves in an old age, you know, uh, that in order to pay for elder care, etc. Equity withdrawal from homes in order to pay for elder care, that's the the dominant way in which people would try to address or were planning to address their elder care needs uh, in old age, you know, that's going to look a lot less secure now. The hopeful thing is I do think there is another form of property which has been lurking in the background, hidden behind a renting economy, which is the commons. And so, you know, I think one of the ways you might see this is we might see a return to a sort of, we'll see a return to much more interventionist state economy, which could have a left or a right inflection. But, you know, there's also a chance, I think, for a much more 
of a sort of commons-based sharing economy. So, and I think that would be the basis of solidarity. So you, you, your broad argument would be something like this. Your individualized form of securing yourself against the risks of the world are illusory. There's only one solid mechanism for or means through which you can secure yourself against these risks, which are going to be increasing and increasing. Uh, and that is, you know, solidaristic relations and the some sorts of institutions which can guarantee them. So that could be the state or it could be sort of like other forms of like of governing in commons together. Now, the first generation, it seems to me, of the sharing economy seems to be mediated by platforms which themselves tend to be quite profitable and also yep. uh, de-skill professions and uh, de-territorialize markets in a way which just seems to leave everybody more precarious than they were before. So the sharing economy doesn't necessarily fill me with optimism. Do you think that that model of sharing economy might endure or we might see uh, yeah, well, starting to, to, to fall apart? Well, it's a misnomer. It's not the share, what we call a sharing economy is actually the renting economy, Airbnb, et cetera, and all these sorts of things. Um, what we will see, though, with the, with the, with the platforms, so, so like the most likely not very nice outcome of this will be some sort of algorithmically managed sort of Keynesian demand managed, you know, big state functions uh, being put into practice by the large platforms. So you know, Amazon is gonna is gonna grow massively. They're gonna buy up huge huge numbers of failing companies, and they're gonna take on huge, huge wider infrastructural roles. I mean, what it reveals is we live in a planned economy. We don't live in a free market economy. We live in a planned economy. The planning for that is done in these huge logistical uh, companies and all corporations such as Walmart, etc. But they're not planning, um, you know, based around people's needs right so you can see some sort of movement you can see some sort of like parallel like an anti-democratic sort of keynesian algorithmically managed but not democratically managed sort of uh, society emerging out of this or you could see a sort of much more democratic model emerging out of this but with what seems really likely is we're going to see some sort of restriction on the financialization of our everyday lives and the and the hegemony of, of finance. It seems likely that that'll be one of the one of the things that emerges out of this. You can sort of see those those diminishing to some way and like a, a larger sort of state or at least state controlled functions emerging in a sort in the economy that, that comes out of this crisis in five to ten years time or something. Because we you know because the, the other thing that the, the other thing is it's going to be very very hard to to make arguments that we cannot do these big transformations in the economy away from a carbon-based economy because, you know, who are the agents for that? It seems quite obvious now. The state are the agents for that. Now, that could be a good or a bad thing, <laughs> depending on how much control we have over that. Um, so I think that's that's the sort of battle lines drawn out, I think, over the next five to ten years, which are quite different, actually, to the battle lines that I thought would be drawn out just a month ago. This has been yeah. really good. Thank you very much. Good to be prompted to think this through. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Kerry. That was wonderful. So I think we can end recording by saying that, to link back to what Alan said in the beginning, that some crowds in the present moment amass to hoard retail products. We amass uh, as a part of the crowd to do podcasts, I guess. Yeah. The podcast general intellect. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah.
But no, I mean, like, seriously, what else is there to do when we're stuck in the house? <laughs> but think about, you know, think about concepts. I think it's a really good idea. 